Okay, so Hebrews chapter 4, starting at verse 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Every high priest is selected from among the people and is appointed to represent the people in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray, since he himself is subject to weakness. This is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins as well as for the sins of the people. And no one takes his honour on himself, but he receives it when called by God, just as Aaron was. In the same way, Christ did not take on himself the glory of becoming a high priest, but God said to him, You are my son. Today I have become your father. And he says in another place, You are a priest forever, in the order of Melchizedek. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverent submission. Son though he was, he learned the obedience from what he suffered, and once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him, and was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Morning, everyone. It is uh, wonderful to be together this morning and to be uh, going through this uh, incredible uh, part of Scripture, which I hope will be a great encouragement for you as we go into uh, our new year. Uh, just a couple of things for you to take note of. Um, I am going to be away this coming week, uh, so if you need to uh, get hold of anyone at the church, then please. Uh, get hold of either Gary uh, or Eric and their contact details uh, are in the newsletter and you'll notice that uh, they're under the title Our Elders, uh, which means that Eric, after a, a well-deserved and very uh, long break, uh, will be serving on our session in that capacity with the gifts that God has given him. I think that's all I need to say. So with that said, before we uh, come to the words of God, let's come to our God and ask for his help this morning. Would you pray with me? Father, we are thankful that you have brought us through another year, that you have gathered us together, that you have grown us, that you have conformed us. Father, as we've already heard in our confession this morning, that there are parts and times when we know that we have not walked in the way that is pleasing to you. But we can testify that you are a God of grace, that you have shown mercy and grace to us continually, your children, for the sake of Christ. This morning, Father, as we come to your word, we ask that by your spirit, you would give us ears to hear, hearts to receive and that you would transform us by the work of your Holy Spirit in our midst. We ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Uh, one thing, if you do have your Bible with you this morning, uh, could you please have it open to the passage that we're going through because I'll be referring to it uh, quite a bit. So it will be helpful for you to have uh, the passage in front of you. Church, if you've uh, ever taken an exam, you know how incredibly intense the time leading up to it can feel. Uh, why are exams so stressful? Because exams determine if you have understood and digested the material correctly that you have been learning over the semester. It's intense because all the hours of study and planning, dedication and sacrifice can, in a way, be fruitless because there is a very real risk that you can fail. Well, church, let me tell you the difference between good advice and good news in this situation. Good advice is, okay, you have exams coming up, they're going to be hard, but if you study as diligently as you can and study as much as humanly possible, you have a real chance of doing well. That's great. That's good advice. But what if you study as hard as you can put all the hours in, but then you get to the exam and all the pressure gets to you. What if you forget everything? Well, good advice would be don't panic. Take a deep breath. Just write everything that you can remember. There's bound to be something in there that will hopefully be worth some kind of mark and it's so much better than just freaking out and doing nothing. That's good advice. But there is a world of difference between good advice and good news. Let me explain. Good news would be you're in the exam. The teacher can see that you don't have anything in you to pass. So they come over to you and they announce to you that they're going to take the exam on your behalf. This, my brothers and sisters, is indeed, this is great news. Now, I'm telling you all of this because this is the type of message that our author is saying over and over again in the book written to the Hebrews. And as we'll see this morning, this passage that we have before us is no exception. You see, the author isn't giving us good advice about how we are to approach God with a set of rules so that maybe, just maybe, if you're good enough, well, God will let you into heaven one day. No, he's telling us the good news that God has come to us in Jesus and that he has taken all that it is to be human and to take He has taken our exam on our behalf and he passed it perfectly, freeing us from death and slavery to sin. But not only that, the author wants us to see that because of Jesus and what he has done for his people, we are welcomed by God to come boldly to him. So why, church, why would you ever want to reject all of that and go back to the entanglement of sin and its wages? With that said, would you look with me at verse 14? 
our author says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. Now, you might ask yourself here straight off the bat, why do we in 21st century Australia still need a great high priest? Well, simply put, because God is still holy and we are still sinful. That's why we need a high priest, because of our sin. We read in Genesis that humanity was created to be in the presence of God and in perfect relationship with him. We see this in the first couple of chapters of our Bibles where our first parents were in the presence of God, uh, in the presence of God, enjoying him in uninterrupted fellowship. But things didn't stay that way for long. No, we go on to read that through the temptation to be their own gods, to make their own rules, our first parents rejected God. That's right, at that moment, in that action to rebel against our creator, sin was brought into this world and because sin and holiness can't exist together, can't cohabit the same space, they were cast from God's presence. In other words, their sin killed our relationship, our friendship with God. And you don't have to read Genesis for very long to see the devastating effects that sin had on all people. It brought destruction, pain, carnage, and ultimately death. And we see this through the whole Bible. But this is the thing. It wasn't just their problem. No, sin has become inherent to the human experience, to our human experience. However, church, thank God, that's not all we read about in our Bibles. No, we also see that God is gracious and and merciful and we see that he chose a family and promised from that family to make a nation and bless the world from them. And it was to the nation of Israel that God gave a law so that his holiness might be revealed and our sin, our lawlessness, shown for what it is. In other words, God resurrected friendship with us. In his grace, in his undeserved favour, he came to us. Now we see in the law how we might draw close to God's holiness. It's through the shedding of blood in another in our place. For example, we read in Leviticus 17.11, for the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Essentially, what this passage is saying is that Atonement for sin comes through the blood of a sacrifice. And this has to be done in order to maintain friendship, relationship with God. Yet this wasn't something anyone could just do. In fact, our author this morning, he points that out in our passage. In chapter 5, verse 4, he says, No one takes this honour on himself, but receives it, when called by God. 
just as Aaron was. In other words, shedding the blood of a sacrifice before God was a ministry given specifically to the priestly family of Aaron, who was appointed by God to intercede for sinners. Intercede means to stand in the place of, kind of like a lawyer. Now, there was a special day of the year called the Day of Atonement, where the high priest was allowed to enter the most holy place in either the tabernacle or the temple to stand before God in his presence. And and his role was to take the blood of the sacrifice into the most holiest place in the building and make an offering for all the people so that their sins would be symbolically covered. That's what's on view in chapter 5, verses 1 through to 2. We read, every high priest is selected from among the people and is appointed to represent the people in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He's able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and going astray since he himself is subject to weakness. But I want to point something out for you this morning. This system wasn't perfect in a couple of ways. We see the first issue in verse 3. The high priest who represented the people to God, who entered the Holy of Holies with the sacrificed blood symbolically atoning for the sins of the people, well, we notice it here. He himself was a sinner and had to offer sacrifices for his own sins before he could offer sacrifices for the sins of other people. That's what our text is getting at there in verse 3. The high priest was himself a sinner and needed forgiveness. And so as a sinner, this meant that not only would his sympathy be imperfect, but his presence in the holy place with God, well, notice it, it was limited to just once a year. It also meant that he would die because death is the wages of sin. He would have to be replaced. This means that he could never guarantee an ongoing presence with God to intercede for the people. There's a second problem, and it's to do with the blood that was sacrificed. You see, Hebrews 10 will go on to tell us that it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Why? Because the law is just a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of those realities. It can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered year after year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? I don't want anyone to misunderstand me uh, with what's going on this morning. This priesthood was graciously given by God. It's a needed ministry. It was a needed ministry. First Samuel 2.25, a question is asked. If someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? The answer is the priest that God appoints. 
as it's an intercessory role that has to happen between God and his people so that relationship, friendship might be maintained. So in saying that, what have we seen this morning? Under the Old Testament, through the Levitical priesthood, it was imperfect. It was incomplete. Why? Why? Because God never meant for that to be the final solution. That was never the plan to be the final solution in regards to our relationship with him. No, it was set up to point forward to something greater, to someone perfect and complete. It was all pointing forward to God's mercy and grace coming in the person of Jesus Christ. And church, that's what our author wants us to focus on here this morning. He he wants us to focus on Jesus Christ, our great high priest. It's all about Jesus and he's eager to tell us what kind of high priest that we have. Look with me at verse 15. We read, for we don't have a high priest who's unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he didn't sin. Now, temptation is an interesting word that is used there because we actually get a glimpse into just how incredibly grim our Lord's temptation was when he faced the cross. If you have your Bibles, look with me at 7 through to 10. We read, during the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence and submission. Son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him and was designated by God to be a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. It's here that we clearly see that Jesus put his complete trust in his father while he was being led to the cross to shed his blood for the sins of his people. And it's because of his perfect obedience through every temptation to disobey, even when faced with the wrath of God, that we have a perfect sacrifice who never gave in to sin. And I want to pause there for a moment because you might be here this morning and thinking to yourself, hey, if, if Jesus is God and he's able to be tested and tempted, why did he need to learn obedience? Well, dear one, chapter 8 of the Westminster Confession is actually incredibly helpful here. It sums up the whole uh, council of scripture and it says that God, the eternal son, really took on human nature and came to dwell with us in the flesh. He, He really became like us in every way, yet his human nature wasn't fallen like ours. This means he had a real human body that had to grow, a real human mind that had to learn and real human emotions that could be tempted and tested. 
Therefore, his perfect obedience through temptation on our behalf, it wasn't an act. It was, it was real in every way. And the eternal son of God came to us in that way for a reason. The author has told us in chapter 2, verse 14 of his book, which we actually looked at briefly on Christmas Day. He says, since the children have flesh and blood, he, being Jesus, too shared in their humanity that, so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death, for surely it's not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service to God, that he might make atonement for the sins of the people because he himself suffered when he was tempted. So he's able to help those who are being tempted. Simply put, brothers and sisters, our author wants us to know that Jesus, he had to take on flesh so that he could be both the perfect sacrifice and the perfect human high priest that we needed. I want to think about that for a moment more. Jesus, the divine son of God, who created the heavens and the earth. Think about this for a moment. He shed his blood for the sin of his people, his innocent blood. I mean, this is what gives the sacrifice on the cross its infinite worth. But we all know here this morning that death couldn't hold him down. We've, we've already seen that in chapter 4, verses 14. We, we read that he passed through the heavens, which makes us think of the ascension in Christ's resurrected body when he rose through the clouds into the heavenly realms, into the presence of God the Father. This means that right now at this very moment, He is with God in the heavens, in the holiest place in the universe. And he is pleading our case with his perfect life. Church, I hope that doesn't fly over your heads this morning. I mean, think about that for a moment. Jesus didn't take the blood of bulls or goats into the heavenly realms. He didn't even take the blood of a mere man. He took his own precious blood, the blood of the sinless son of God. Which means when God the father sees his son who gave himself for our sin, he says that's enough, the debt's been paid, my righteousness vindicated. Which means he overlooks all our transgression and counts us as his beloved children in Christ. The Apostle Paul, uh, he says it like this in Romans 3. 
God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. There is one who has taken the exam for you in your place. Incredibly, church, this was never plan B. This has always been God's plan for his people. To have a perfect sacrifice and eternal high priest. And we see that in verse 10. How our author says that Jesus designated by God, was designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Let me explain why that's really important and we'll fly over this part. You see, in chapter 7 and 8, our author will go on to tell us that this order of Melchizedek is the perfect and eternal priesthood that Jesus was appointed to by God and that he is the fulfillment of what the entire priestly system was just a shadow of. As before Christ came, the holiest place in the temple was only entered into once a year and that by a sinful high priest. But as we know, that was just a type of the true holy place in heaven where God dwells. It's in this heavenly temple now where our sinless high priest lives today and unlike all the other high priests that ever lived and died, Jesus lived and died and rose again from the dead, never to die again. And because Jesus has this indestructible life and internal priesthood, he has immediate access to God in heaven without interruption. That's why Christians proclaim that it's through Jesus alone that our relationship with God has been permanently restored. It's one of the definitions of the Reformation cry, Christ alone. This is why the whole Old Testament system of priesthood is over. It was only a shadow pointing to the reality that we have in Jesus Christ now. In church, we have to be warned. That's what verse 14 is talking about. It's a a warning to hold fast to our confession. That confession that's on view here is our faith that God has done everything that is needed to be done in his son to bring us into that final rest and joy. Church, God has made our adoption, our friendship, our relationship with him possible only because he first came to us. He, in his mercy, in his grace, has sent us a perfect and final sacrifice in his own son, who is an eternal high priest, who really loves and cares for us, and he is alive at this very moment. There is nothing more to do. And this is incredibly, incredibly important to live in light of. Because this good news 
doesn't just tell us that our great high priest has dealt with our sins, but that he's personally, lovingly involved in our lives today. Personally involved in our struggles as we resist going back to our old way of life. Where we were in bondage to sin, dead in trespasses. It's there in verse 15. I want to read it again. We don't have a high priest who's unable to empathize with our weaknesses. We have one who's been tempted in every way just as we are. Yet he didn't sin. You see, because Jesus is alive, because Jesus is in heaven right now, because Jesus intercedes on behalf of his blood-purchased people, this means that he can offer compassion and help to us because he has shared in what it is to be human having been tempted like us in every way. I think it's here that we see the difference between being tempted and giving in to temptation, right? You might be here this morning and thinking, well, Jesus hasn't gone through what I've gone through. He's never been tempted with the things that I'm tempted with. With drugs, the addiction to pornography. And yes, uh, though the instruments of sin that we deal with in our culture haven't always existed, sin's essential, destructive nature has always been the same. Things like cheating, stealing, murder, lust have always been out to destroy humanity. And the author wants us to know sin was really out to destroy Jesus. Yet as we're told here, he never once sinned. I love how C.S. Lewis helps us here. He once heard someone say, if Jesus never sinned, then he doesn't know what temptation is really like. He lived a sheltered life and is out of touch with how strong temptation can really be. This is what C.S. Lewis had to say. A silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation means. Well, this is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it actually is. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply doesn't know what it would be like an hour later. This is why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They've always lived a sheltered life by always giving into it. Christ, on the other hand, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows to the fullness what temptation really means. The only complete realist. Brothers and sisters, this should bring us incredible comfort when tempted. When tempted with the very real destructive sin that we face. 
because our Lord has felt the same urges and temptations like we have, and he personally knows the battle that sin wages against our soul. Yet he always resisted. He never fell. This means he really can help us when we're tempted to turn to those sinful behaviors that so easily entangle and destroy us. Or when temptation seems too strong to handle. What do we do with all of this? What do we practically do with all this wonderful knowledge that we have learned of our God this morning? Well, that's the last point I want to land on as we wrap up. It's there in verse 16. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Listen carefully to this because this is incredibly important. Every one of us in this room needs help. We are not God. We have needs, we have weaknesses, we have confusion, and we have limitations of all sorts, and we need help from God. But every single one of us in this room has something else, and that's sin. Therefore, we really know at the bottom of our hearts that we don't deserve from God what we really need. So you can feel trapped. You might say, I need help to live my life. I need help with my family, my spouse, my children, my loneliness, my job, my health, my finances. I need help, but I know I don't deserve the help that I need. So what do we do? There's two ways to live, dear ones. You can try to deny it all and pretend that you don't need help. Or you can try to drown it all and throw your life into a pool of carnal pleasures. Or you can simply give way to the paralysis of despair. Church, God declares something this morning. He declares something in his living and active word over these hopeless conclusions that our flesh draws us into. Jesus Christ became a high priest to shatter that despair with the hope to rescue a wretch like me. It's true, we all need help. Yes, none of us deserves the help we need, but look at what God has told us this morning. Because we have a perfect sacrifice, because we have a perfect high priest, The throne of God isn't a throne of judgment. It's a throne of grace. And the help that we get at that throne is mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. Grace, undeserved favor to help, not deserved help, gracious help. This is the whole point of Christ's intercessory role on behalf of his people. I'm not here today to give you good advice on this New Year's Eve. I'm here to tell you good news. 
God planned from eternity past for a saviour, a redeemer, a rescuer, a gracious helper to live perfectly on our behalf, to die in our place and to live forevermore as the high priest of his people. You are not trapped in a hopeless situation. That's a lie from the pit of hell. We all need help. We all don't deserve it, but we can all have it. You and I have it right now. If you will receive and trust in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and draw near to our Heavenly Father through him. So as we end, I just want to ask a few questions. Maybe you're here today and you're stuck in a sin that is causing you to run from your high priest. You're like Adam. You hide behind the proverbial bush trying to cover yourself, ashamed to come out, maybe pointing fingers at other people. Well, listen to these words this morning. Run to him. He is for you and not against you because of Jesus, because of the beloved, because you're in Christ, you will find his mercy. Maybe you're here and you're tempted with something every single day. You're fighting, you're hurting, ashamed, feeling tired. Run to him. Brother, sister, run to him. He knows what you're going through. It is his word that tells us you will find mercy and grace. Maybe you're here today and you would say you have no sacrifice for your sin, no high priest, no hope. Well, friend, you're not headed towards the throne of grace. You are heading to one of judgment. And it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But this is the good news. There is hope for you. And Christ is really being held out to you today. All you have to do is call upon the name of the Lord and you will be saved. If you're not sure how to do that, then please don't leave this place wondering. Come and speak to me after the service. I would love to meet with you and pray with you. Church, let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for the cross. We are so thankful for the life and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. That right now as we pray, as right now you are convicting, as you are stirring your people with the sin that so easily entangles in our own lives. Father, that you have given us grace upon grace, mercy upon mercy, that we are invited to come to you. And so I pray today as we go into our new year, Lord, that your children don't look to the things of this world, to the despair, to the hopelessness, but to you. I pray, Father, that this year coming would be a year that we know personally, if we haven't already, where we experience and know you. Father, I ask that you would draw your people in closer and closer and in more intimacy in Christ. 
that we would know who you are so that out of the overflow of our changed hearts, we might proclaim good news to others. This is a work of your spirit and we plead for it and we ask for it in Jesus' name. Amen.